0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada Ivester Education Center here at the History Center. And today I have with me Jean Harmon to talk about portraying historic characters. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: The portraying historical characters is one of the things that is near and dear to our hearts here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We offer webcasts with a variety of different historical characters for schools all around Georgia and the country. Some of our most popular historical figures that we get requests for a lot are Ben Franklin, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Juliet Gordon-Lowe, and of course, Rosie the Riveter. And sometimes we also offer in-person events where people can meet George Washington. We just had a homeschool day. Excuse me, we just had a family day where people got to meet George Washington. We've had people come and meet James Oglethorpe for our Founding of Georgia family day. So here at the History Center, we very much enjoy doing that type of historical interpretation where we have a person who is very knowledgeable about a historic character, bring that historical character to life, especially for ones pre-recording, where we don't have recording of their voice. We don't have recording, video recording of them. We really just have their, their words written on a page sometimes we have photographs so we can kind of make sure we look like the person or well paintings, which I feel like people can kind of choose how they want to be portrayed in paintings, but it's a general representation of what they looked like. So here at the History Center, we base our historical characters off of the GSEs or the Georgia standards of excellence, meaning that all of the historical figures that we have here at the History Center are ones that teachers have to cover in their classroom. Now at historic homes, The historic characters are usually based off of the people who live there. For instance, out Mount Vernon, you might meet George and Martha Washington, but that really it always depends on the place as to what historical characters that institution, that museum is trying to portray. So I have Gene Harmon here uh, who has his own business doing historical interpretation. Uh, Can you tell us about some of the characters that you portray?
1: It well, was part of inheriting heritage. I've done uh, both federal uh, Confederate soldiers. Uh, I've done a uh, Andrew Flute, which was a park ranger in uh, McKinley National Park in the 1940s, uh, and uh, I've done a Civil War civilian. I'm currently working on a, a couple uh, here being in Northwest Texas now, one being a sharecropper and uh, one working on the Dust Bowl and even a, looking at the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, member, it's it's challenging, uh, it, especially finding different things. You, know, you kind of pick a character or a type of character, and then you have to you dig deeper. Uh, it, it's never something that's really easy to do. And uh, for for instance, with the the uh, Andrew Flutes that uh, did it, actually did it for a while, you know, five and a half months, about five months in Denali National Park. Was employed up there doing that. So, able to do that in a 1924 era cabin 15 miles into the park in the wilderness. When I went up there, I had no knowledge of Alaska history, no knowledge of the park. Yeah, I'd heard of it, but I had no knowledge of its history. And I was given the task to create a living history program. And at first, I was overwhelmed. <laughs> you know, so first of all, you know, who do I pick? And then what about them? And so I just started reading the sources, uh, found out Andrew Fluch, he came from Glacier National Park, which is another park I would like to visit, haven't been there. But he ended up working with Adolf Murray, who is a National Park Service biologist who worked with wolves. The wolves happen, a wolf happens to be my favorite animal. My native side refers to it as a spirit animal. Says, so OK, Andrew Fluch, he worked with Adolph Murray, biologist who worked with the wolves. OK, let's take a look at this guy. And so I was able to, they wanted something done on the history of the cabin, which I did. Kind of mix the history of the cabin. And in fact, with Andrew Flooch stayed in that cabin, Adolph Murray stayed in that cabin. So I was able to link the two together and use my passion for history and the passion for that particular animal to create a program that not only passed uh, standards for the National Association for Interpretation, but also it had to pass NPS standards. If you ever had an intimidating moment, when i was told that they'd be coming out to grade my program to see if it passed the nps standards i knew they were coming during a certain week but when i look out at this crowd of 100 or so people and i see seven smoky bear hats in the back i went like, <laughs> okay <laughs> no pressure <laughs> but yeah it ended up passing that passing that you know that as well so hope it didn't go too far there for you oh absolutely
0: now i think that's interesting because I think we just used a lot of what some people might call alphabet soup. This is uh, a term that one of a person told me is it's kind of like, okay, we just use a bunch of like terms that everyone like in the business knows, but people outside the business probably don't. So let's like define some of our terms for perhaps someone who's listening, who's like, what the heck did they just say?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, <laughs> first of all, living history. That's of course we're, we're bringing history to life, essentially. And that can be done in first person or third person. So first person is like Andrew Fluke, like you did. So do you want to take take it out from there? Like, So what? how would you define first person living history interpretation?
1: First person is, basically what I did with Edward too at the History Center, you take a persona, you dress as close to them as you possibly can, you try to look like them as much as possible. I have a goatee now, but I actually had to keep it shaved and grow my. I like keeping my hair short. Of course, nobody can see what I'm doing right now, but <laughs> I like keeping it really short and a goatee. And to do Edward, I had to grow the hair out more and actually keep the goatee shaved. But you try to look like the person. If there's like you mentioned, if there's recordings, you try to uh, mimic the voice. Uh, for Edward, I did not. Of course, there were no recordings of him, but I used gentlemen from his generation that lived longer than him. Recordings I found on YouTube to try to model Edward's voice after. But it's taking on that persona, getting to know them as much as possible and becoming them, not just their personal life, but also the world around them. Like with Andrew Fluch, uh, 1940, Alaska, World War II hasn't started yet. That doesn't mean the tensions aren't there. There's still things going on in Europe. There's things going on between us and the Japanese and you'll, not knowing exactly where Russia stood on all this, Alaska is just a hop, skip and a jump away from Eastern Russia. So there's still a lot of tension. Of course, I don't bring all that up in my presentation, but when somebody asked about it, I was able to answer those questions. You know, for instance, a lot of the, actual a lot of the Rangers, not just, they worked in uh, McKinley, now Denali National Park, uh, but others as well, would trade their NPS uniforms for military uniforms and fight in World War II. That's, I mean, NPS originally was the parks were were managed by the military and then the National Park Service was created. So they kind of continue just continue the military tradition. But again, the the era that you live in, the person lived in, how they even their personal life, you can find letters and diaries and things of how they thought about something. You can use that and be careful not to look at what you find out about them or the era, their culture that they're in, how they were raised don't gauge that by modern hindsight, because it's not the same. Um, I've even gone back in conversations with people because I tell them you don't look at no matter what era you look at. We cannot look at it the way we think now, and I've taken it far as far back as biblical times and gone. Well, you know, during warfare at that time, when you defeated someone, you killed everybody, everybody, because you didn't want somebody growing up to start a civil war. Now, nowadays, we go, oh, my God, that's horrible. Yeah, it is. But that was part of the culture. So caution everybody, no matter what era, you know, Civil War is a really touchy one, I know. I could go on forever on that one. That's a whole other series of podcasts. But, uh, it's uh, even you know, World War II. Not going into it, but you know how, how could the German people let Hitler come to power? That's a whole other study. And when you look at it in their time frame, their culture, what they lived in, it starts making more sense than us trying to brand it with our mentality.
0: One of the really hard things about doing first-person interpretation is because you have to answer as if you are living in 1940, but you're talking to people who are obviously a modern audience. Or I just say 1940 because I, I do the character Rosie the Riveter, which, of course, Rosie is like kind of a, a umbrella term for a lot of different people. But I portray a specific Rosie, who we named Rosie because it's fun. And the children were going to call me Rosie anyway. So I'm like, well, my name's Rosalind, but you can call me Rosie. And, you know, they ask a bunch of questions. And it's usually it's easier to field children's questions because they ask questions like, do you have any children? What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And, you know, what's your favorite color? And do you have any pets? There was one class who was very concerned about weather conditions during Civil War battles because I also portray a Civil War nurse. Um, that one I do third person. So I get to, which I we will we'll get to in a moment about how I like third person better. But <laughs> they, they were just very interested in weather conditions as what happens if there's tornadoes, or rainstorms, or like, they, I think they had just studied severe weather, and then they went through every type of weather condition and questions. But when you have older audiences, they are can ask more complicated questions, uh, mm-hmm. things that are against modern sensibilities, but perhaps that character saw in a completely different way, because that was just how they were in that time period. And sometimes the words that come out of your mouth uh, because you're portraying that character, they're that person's words, but it can sometimes be uncomfortable. Um,
1: right?
0: Because it's still coming out of your mouth. Um, so at the end, I usually like to be like, okay, so um, someone had, because you know, sometimes we'll step out, if there is a presentation, you can then step out a character at the end and be like, hey, let's come back to that question and like talk about it in a modern sense as well. Now, if you're portraying the, at like a house or something where you have to do ongoing interpretation, you can't really step outside of that character. It becomes perhaps more difficult. But you all but it want, can be done. It can be done. <laughs>
1: that, that was one thing really tricky with a with swan house, like you said, because we we were on all the time. And one thing I, I trained the other, the other interpreters there to really strive to do is you can answer a question, even though I was in 1930, I can answer a question beyond that by changing the tense of the words. Um. Uh, for instance, people would ask about Emily in her later life, and I would go, well, after I die, Emily would do this. It's just it's it's tricky. It takes practice, uh, but you can do it. That way you're not breaking out a character, but you're still answering their question. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I, I personally do in my presentations, you know, people do it differently, is if somebody has a question, unless it's way off topic, I'll go ahead and answer that question because I know myself, maybe it's an age thing, I don't know. (laughs) I know myself, if I think of a question and don't ask it, 10 minutes later, it may be gone because I'm intaking more information, but that's just me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so some of the characters you mentioned you did are, are more third person characters, right? They're representative of a group uh, more or less than an individual person. Like you don't have like a name and you're like, I am Frank Williams and I am a union soldier. It's more well just like, I am a general union soldier. And this is what the general union soldier experience would be. And that's a different type. It's still living history. It's still, in a sense, it's a character portrayal. It's not a specific character, but it's like a general character, I guess. And those are usually done in third person. So you can still be a modern human and talk about... The past versus in the past and talking as if the future had never happened.
1: I, I do those, as you may, in third person, mainly because it's not for a specific site. And if you're employed as a specific site, of course, it would probably make more sense for you to find a soldier that was actually there and portray them in first person. Of a third person being, yeah, you know, I, I wear the uniforms, I wear the gear, carry the weapons, uh, have the same knowledge but I'm not speaking as if I'm in the 1860s. Uh, so you kind of, not that you can go into more detail, people aren't as confused when you're talking to them. <laughs> so sometimes that, sometimes that works better. Presentations I did down at Andersonville, National Historic Site, I, I would do as, uh, in this manner, third person, the ones I did at uh, Stately Oaks and Jonesboro, I did that as well. And it's, you can kind of cover a wider, I guess a wider spectrum of information about, a Union or a Confederate soldier, or whichever person you're looking at, when you're doing third person, uh, it opens up in some, in some cases, it opens up to more questions uh, because you're not nailing it down to a specific. And if they don't know about that specific time frame or that, you know, say four years that you're talking about that the soldier lived, or, you know, he may have died at the end of the war, you don't know, then it does. I guess, I think in some cases, it makes people more open to asking questions. Uh, then there are other times when. Uh, for down in Andersonville, when I get through with one presentation and I have you know like an hour to my next one, I'm standing there doing answering questions all the way up to the time for my next presentation, and then sometimes nobody walks up, it's just <laughs> kind of a hit or miss. But they each have a you know, valid plus or minus to them. Uh, with it, living history, period, whether they're doing third or first person, it makes a visual reality to the audience. Uh, you can read about uh i don't say civil war military here again military background myself but it takes you can read history books and they talk about casualties you know so many people killed and when i first started my own history interest i actually started world war ii books world war ii encyclopedias my dad had and i started out before you just even read much looking at pictures then i read the captions then i started reading the texts And then it dawned on me, I'm probably never going to set foot on a World War II battlefield. So, all around me in Georgia, I've got Civil War, French and Indian War, Rev War. And so that's what I started mostly concentrating on. But you know, it started as the learning the grand scale of the battles, you know, Gettysburg, Antietam, Battle of Atlanta, the grand maneuvers. And then as I became more actually involved with doing living histories, there was more of the military tactics. And as that progressed, it came down to, OK, what about the individual soldier? And so being able to put faces, uh, if you can do names and you're the first person, great. But if you put faces with that soldier, the audience is looking there at a soldier in civil war uniform. And that statistic is no longer just a statistic, just a statistic. It has now become a person. And making them a person gets people to care more and answers the question more of why should I care? because they lived, breathed, loved, and died just like we do.
0: Because that's the whole purpose for museums doing historical interpretation in this way with historic characters, whether they be first person, I have a name, or they're third person, I'm kind of representing a group who is generally underrepresented, perhaps, in history books, because when we think of history, we think of, like, ah, the, the great, you know, we don't talk about Johnny who died on the battlefield, who left behind his mom and wife and kids and, you know literally just was like 18 years old and this is that was his life you know we think about the big generals and presidents and politicians and I think you know there might not be enough material really to do a whole program on just Johnny but if you take all of the Johnnies and you can talk about each of them and you kind of become a portal for for their stories it becomes far more relational and that person you, you really breathe life into those stories. And it makes people care. And also, I think, realize that, wait, these were real humans. It's not just names and facts and dates. This is the story of humanity that we are still a part of. And that's truly the, the heart of why people like us do this is is because we love history. We love teaching and explaining and to teach in this way, I think, is is so much more effective, really, than, you know, listing out. And then on the 8th of January, there was this battle here. And then this is the grand maneuver that happened. And making it more personal, it's far more.
1: And shattering stereotypes in the process. Yes.
0: Because <laughs> you can definitely do that a little bit easier as a historical character. So how, how did you get started reenacting living history, historic figures? And I know you do all of that. And that's not, there are, there are similarities. Like if we had a Venn diagram, you had reenacting living history and portraying historic figures. There is a fair amount of overlap, but there's also not. So just for everyone out there who is like, what, what are these things? And it's, you know, generally portraying the past, but in slightly different nuanced ways.
1: So how did I get to it? Well, I mentioned the, you know, how I started, you really had an interest in history since I was a young age. And then uh, it was, let's see, 1993? 90, yeah, 93. I happened to be at a Kennesaw Mountain. And uh, there was a unit there doing living history. Uh, had a medical tent going. Of course, they did firing demonstrations, had a medical tent. There was a gentleman there. Oh, actually, it turns out a lot of the guys that were there, I ended up getting to know quite well through the years. One of them being, uh, you're going to know exactly who I'm talking about, had a glass eye. And he was in the, uh, the medical tent area. And my, my older kids were really young. Of course, they're the sawing this guy's, some, some guy's leg off, you know. And of course, he's screaming. And the girls are, my two young girls are clutched to me. He's like, what's going on? I'm so scared. Da, da, da. I said, it's not real, honey. It's not real. Well, Mr. Jerry was sitting on the ground right in front of us with his back to us. And I'm sitting there telling him, telling the, the kids that it wasn't real. He turns around and looks at us and he has that glass eye and a bandage down here on his cheek. And the girl's freaked. <laughs> but uh, so that, that's kind of my introduction to it. But me and my dad both were like, this was pretty neat. It be kind of neat to get into it. I wonder how we do that. And there's a voice behind us. Saying, hey, well, I gonna take you down there and talk to the colonel right now. Uh, which he did. It was a, a tall corporal. Which, odd story is that Nobody knows who that corporal was, not even the guy. Yeah, he was never seen again. When we described him, they go, like, We have no idea who you're talking about. Uh, anyway, we talked to, the, talked to the colonel of the battalion, and we're in our first event just a couple a couple months later. But as we're going through the years doing uh, I like to call them battle recreations, uh, living history programs, we always joked around the fires that man, it'd be great to do this for a living. How are we going to do that? I don't know, they sure would be great. Uh, and I worked for an IT field for 20 plus years. Uh, it was all learned hands-on, really didn't have a degree for it. So they all started going toward network stuff. And mainframes were going away real quick. And I got laid off, was uh, unemployed for quite a while, and decided just on a whim to do a, uh, a job search for living history, an interpreter. And uh, this company came up called Aramark. Uh, some of you may know them from doing uniforms and stuff for different companies, but they're also a concessioner for national parks in the Northwest. Uh, so they had a job up there for historical interpreter. Talked to my wife. She says, why don't you go for it? I said, it's Alaska." guy. She says, it's not all year, just a few months. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll try. I don't think, but I'll try. So I applied for it and uh, they called me two days later, uh, gave me an interview on the phone and then called back the next day and offered me the job. So I went up to Alaska, did uh, Andrew Fluch uh, for five months up there, uh, came back to Atlanta, and that's what opened the door. My experience and work up there is what opened the door to work at the Atlanta History Center. As the years progressed there, it got to where I wanted to do more than what I was just doing at the History Center. Uh, so I looked at uh, breaking out somewhat. I actually started it before my employment ended there at the History Center uh, with my own company, Inheriting Heritage LLC, which does not only interpretive programming, uh, but also uh, consulting and training as well. Uh, I've done programs, created and done programs at state parks, national parks, museums. I've even done programs for, uh, um, I wanna say, not, not a, well, there was one nursing home I did one at, but um, uh, activity centers for, for older people, which they they absolutely love those. Did several up in the uh, North Alpharetta, North Fulton areas. And uh, I even have back, actually been approached by a couple of people as far as doing uh, sales training, Sales training, it's kind of the same thing you're doing now. Believe it or not, interpretive museum stuff, you're wanting to sell what you're telling them. So they have approached me to see if I could teach their sales team how to present it using interpretive themes where it makes a difference, where it makes a connection instead of just, eh, buy it because we want you to. So I'm looking into that as well.
0: Interesting. I hadn't thought about how we are trying to sell history.
1: That, I was like, I'm like, what? Okay, wait a minute. I see what you're saying there, huh? Yeah,
0: but we have no product that we're trying to sell. It's just, it's just historical. It's no, historical knowledge.
1: just, just knowledge.
0: Yeah, which is intangible but invaluable. Right. So, once you decide on a historical figure, like, where do you start your research? Because I know if I have a historical character, if I have like a named character, obviously you go and see if that person produced any writing or has any video footage, audio footage. And then you, essentially, I feel like you're almost like an actor. You, you, and I think this is why this is a very niche thing is because you have to have a deep love of history and appreciation for historical detail. And then you also have to have like a little bit of a theatrical side, a little theater background, which is, I lucked out because that those are like my two favorite things in the world uh, is his history and theater. Um, so historical portraying, like, living history and historical portrayals of historical figures is just like right up my alley. It's, it's perfect to get to do that. So how do you start your research? Is it, is it a similar process? Do you have like a, like a deep dive or a character page that you like try to fill out? Cause that's like somewhat actors do is they try to like figure out their character and then like add things in.
1: Of course, if it's a well-known, well-known historical figure, hit as many books as you can find. Uh, even the ones that don't agree with each other, uh, I've I've heard no matter what historical subject you're looking at, don't read just one book, don't read just two, read at least three, and have one of them being an opposing viewpoint. But you know, historical, you know, a famous historical figure, diaries, letters, anything you can find on them. Of course, lesser known. I say, if you mentioned earlier, if there's a particular site and there's somebody there that's known, for instance, Andersonville. It's done a wonderful job of digging up individual stories of prisoners that were there both those that survived and those that died uh, other parks have done the same thing with a battlefields or just uh, n- nature sites some of the sites up in the northwest have done great work uh, with uh, uh, john muir uh, his writings and connecting those to the particular park so it makes it easier if it's a well-known person uh if it's not you, you kind of mentioned earlier molding or meshing information together uh dig up as much as you can on that person and then the the people that they were with the cultures they were with kind of mix that in with what is known about that person and you're not going to be spot on every time no matter how much you know about the person you're not going to get it perfect because you're not them
0: Um, (laughs) i've always one of my fears when i'm like doing a named character um, Because I also do one who is a loyalist named Elizabeth Johnston, and she has like this one book that she wrote, and that's kind of it. And it's just like her diary about her life in colonial Georgia and then being, you know, kind of on the run as a loyalist once the, you know, revolution kind of goes the other way. So I know a lot about like outside sources because like you just have to know about being like what a lady of her class and time period would have thought and kind of been like because you know some people have diaries like mary chestnut and it's a brick and write about like everything that i ever saw and ever felt and then hers is is a rather slimmer volume a, a very detailed not not incredibly detailed account of not that many years and that's always something that i'm just like ah i'm not her so i don't I don't know, like, she never left, like, uh, you know, certain questions like that people might ask. And I just have to kind of do my best guess. But also at the same time, if that information isn't out there, then no one can say I'm wrong. But it's just one of those things where I'm just like, I just want to get it so right. Yeah. Sometimes you have to make your best historically educated guess.
1: And then, of course, beyond published things, you have to dig into the archives if you want detailed stuff on, on a person. Um, one thing i found very valuable as far as the common soldier, common people, believe it or not, is you familiar with archive.org? Yep. Okay. That the, the letter, the amount of letters that that site has from individuals is, is, is remarkable. Um, they have books on there that you can buy. They have books on, that you can loan, but there's so much free stuff you can just download. I was on there a while back downloading all this stuff. And and Amy goes, so when are you going to start reading the stuff you're downloading? Uh, Yeah, I guess I need to do that, too.
0: (laughs) Sometimes it's just fun to collect.
1: Right. Yeah, anything, Anything possible, any source you can think of. And when you're reading a book or an article, a lot of times they'll mention another location maybe the person lived in or something else, another source. Get that source. Find out they lived in a different city. Check the archives of that city. Get in touch with those archives. You'll be a little familiar with this one. You know, uh, the, the family that we worked together with at Sweetwater.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She's buried out here in Texas. Catherine Stewart's buried in Texas.
0: Interesting.
1: Only about two hours away from me. Uh, I actually visited her grave. But you found that out from archives. Archive search. Uh, that She came out here which I you know, didn't really know what happened to her after the war. But uh, Catherine Stewart's buried out here. Uh, this is one of the things you find out. Um, findagrave.com because sometimes give you wonderful information. If there's not much there, a lot of times it gives you bases and places that you can go get more information from. But different things like that. You know, don't count on everything being your one and all source because it's not. I've got... Uh, hundreds of books in here, <laughs> and it's all because you say, like, "Well, don't you have a book on that already?" Yeah, but not from this viewpoint. So it's constantly, and it's constantly learning. Uh, when I was doing Edward, when I was doing Andrew, uh, even the third person once I do now, I'm. You're never going to know it all. You, it's always a learning process. Always, I always told people hey, if you ever hear these words come out of my mouth, I know everything. Hit me with a two before because I've lost my mind.
0: And I, that's, oh, there's like a, a whole thing about if you, you know, when you become almost an expert, you know, that there's so much things that you don't know. And that's almost like, it's like patch 22 because the expert knows so much, but then also knows that they don't know everything versus a person who's like, perhaps not the most knowledgeable person. They, they learned a little bit and they're like, ah, I know all of this. And it's like, no, that's not quite how that works.
1: Yeah. And never, never be afraid to say, I don't know.
0: I've definitely said that during interpretation because no interpretation is better than false interpretation.
1: Right. Because if, if you make something up, they'll find it out, especially the way the internet is now. They will find it out.
0: I'm several times. Spreading misinformation.
1: Right, <laughs> Several times I've said, I don't know, but give me your contact information. I will find that answer and get back to you.
0: And I don't know is a historical answer because people back then also didn't know everything. Yep. <laughs> and then fun little backstory, since we mentioned Sweetwater Creek, but our listeners don't know what that is. Another Hunger Games site of a, a filming site, which is another theme throughout our podcasts apparently now, but it was also the site of my first ever living history experience that I had with, Gene was leader of our group at that time, uh, the second Georgia sharpshooters and, oh, The other, we also portrayed another one, but we, and then we just portrayed a bunch of other random things as well, because mainly like a living history group that was kind of based in 1860s Georgia. Uh, But at the mill, I really liked that one because we really dug into the people at the place. We saw the different profiles of the different mill workers who worked at New Manchester Mill and their experience through the American Civil War and the ultimate destruction of the mill and taking away, essentially almost like imprisoning of the mill workers and transporting them far, far, far away from their homes. But yes, I was that was my first ever living history that gave me the the living history bug. Uh, I had done tour guiding before that at a historic home where we were tour guides in costume. So there was like a smidge of historical interpretation in that, of course, because you're you're being a historical interpreter guide, a little bit through the through the house, and you're in costume. So you're again you're creating that that feel that the house is lived in even more. But we weren't pretending to be the people that lived there essentially. So it's a it's a little different, a little bit more. It wasn't even like really third person e, except that we did talk about the family, so you could kind of put us into the family if in the mind of the visitor if they wanted to, but again, I, I didn't, I was like a young girl, which I mean, the family, uh, the McCord family, which is the name of the family whose house I tour guided at. I mean, they did have a young daughter named, uh, Loretta. So essentially I, I could have been like, quote unquote, could have been her, but that wasn't really the interpretation plan, um, at that place. But yeah. And then, uh, just, I continued on doing more and more personas as, as we had more and more uh, places that we went to perform living history and got involved with even more groups and historic dance groups and <laughs> all of that fun things. So one of my questions was, do you? When do you feel ready to portray a historical figure? And I, it seems that like that answer is truly never. Yeah,
1: um, <laughs> I mean, you've got to know. You got to know enough to to start about the person and, and like I said, and and the era. You, as we both have said, you'll never know it all. And but the main, no matter what you do, the important part is being able to know enough to answer questions outside. as an example, I've been to historic sites or a museum where they have a costume interpreter, and they're doing either doing something or they're talking. but you ask them something outside of their time frame or outside of what they're talking about. And, and not that they totally lose their mind, but they're like, uh." You can see their train of thought jump tracks. They're so used to doing the same thing over and over again. Amy went into one where she went. It was a Christmas program in a cabin, and she went in and basically supposed to you'll walk through, see things. And but there are two two ladies. It was Civil War era. Two ladies at the fire uh, making stuffing and talking to each other. So she decided to kind of hang back. She wanted to see what they were gonna make, and she said it was like as soon as people come in. It was like hitting stop and rewind and play. It was the same words, the same actions, everything. It's like she was watching a DVD going back and forth. So I personally, I'm not knocking interpretive theater. I just can't do it. Um, <laughs> I do not like scripts because if I've seen it, in it make interpreters jump tracks, their minds too much, and then then you can see them mentally trying to okay, where was I? 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 So in what I encourage interpreters to do is to know enough about the person or the place or the era that they're in so that they can have conversations. They they don't answer questions based on a script that they have made. They have answer questions based on the knowledge that they put in their own head from research. And it does make it more conversational. A guest does not hear the same thing if they come back a week later to talk to the same interpreter. It's not the same words. I know at the Atlanta History Center I had a lot of return people come back. They'd bring their families back to talk to us. And so many times I told us, this, this is, it is so neat how it's a different experience every time we're here. It just there's some, a lot of museums, unfortunately, have that really dry interpretation that, well, once you've seen it, eh, it's going to be the same thing next time you go. And it's something to be careful with, with historic sites based in the same era, whether Rev War sites, Civil War sites. What makes yours different? I can go over to this Rev War site or Civil War site and see somebody shoot a rifle, too what makes this site different from that one over there and that's what you also have to integrate into your interpretation is what makes your site stand out now i'm not saying you're all in competition i would say a lot of supervision in some museums see themselves as in competition with other museums i got to do better than this i got to get got to get more visitors than there. no you all work together show what makes your site different and special and then it all kind of works together you'll still get the visitation and flow because you are being different If you try to be like the other site you're not because they can see that anywhere
0: yeah you have to dive into what makes your site special or what makes your museum special and that's one of the great things about you know when planning interpretive things is that you get to kind of show off (laughs) in that way you can show off what what makes it special now, you talked a little bit about some of the standards that you had to meet when putting together certain interpretive programming set up by the NPS, and I I assume, but for all of our visitors listening to this this podcast, is, are you referring to the manual interpreting? Are you, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about the standards for the NPS, I assume that you're talking about the book Interpreting Our Heritage, uh, which has been like the standard for NPS for like Fifty more, fifty more than fifty years at this point.
1: Yes, I believe Freeman Tilden published that in 1957, and it was really groundbreaking at the time. There was, there were rangers that would do programs. They would talk about a site. Um, You know, big joke about you know rangers pointed everything. You know, we still do it now, but at the time it wasn't. It was basically just talking about stuff. There wasn't. There wasn't ever before he published this. There wasn't a desire, not desire is the wrong word, they didn't see a necessary thing to to do anything special to connect people to what they were looking at. It was basically looked at as, well, it's a canyon. It's pretty. You should think it's pretty. Why don't you think it's pretty? Well, what made the canyon? What makes it important? And that's the things that Freeman Tilden brought out. Even though his book is called Interpreting Our Heritage, heritage actually refers to, it, as it does with my business name, not just historical, but cultural Historical, historical, hysterical, <laughs> cultural, historical, and uh, natural settings as well. Um, in fact, if you look at interpretation in the UK, they call all their interpretation heritage interpretation, no matter what subject they're talking about.
0: They have that big umbrella of English heritage, which is essentially a government entity,
1: right? Which is one reason why I named my, my business inheriting heritage. It being cultural, natural, historical. We're all linked uh, more so now in our modern time, but our cultures throughout time have been linked together, whether by force, <laughs> by natural causes, but we've all been in, intermingled to each other to where we can't really look at my heritage without looking at somebody else's or or the uh, what happened uh, on a landscape without looking at something else. And he, if you look at areas of World War One, now there's some areas of that where the trenches are all that are uninhabitable because of the chemicals and the the weapons and stuff that are still there, uh, the gases that were used, and so you have a something done by man, military, a war that has caused both natural and cultural impacts that we still feel today. Uh, so I refer to it being all a heritage. We have all inherited together so that's why i call my business inheriting heritage where was i going with that <laughs> <laughs> no idea um so the park service took tilden's principles and they created a really firm foundation that's still there it's still something everything's built on people have added to it um i've got books of other interpretation where people have added to it expanded on them but those six principles is what everything's still based on so when I did my training up in uh, uh, Denali to portray Andrew Fluch, of course, I had to go through this interpretive training through the uh, sponsored by the National Association for Interpretation, uh, NAI, which taught that you're making a connection. And to do that, you had to come up with a theme, an idea of your program, a theme for your program, and three different things that would bring it all together and connect people with what you're talking about. So my theme ended up being one man can make a difference, or one person can make a difference. So during my presentation, I mentioned a man that used to come up and hunt in the area, and he fell in love with the area, thought it should be preserved. So he went back and actually got in touch with uh, Theodore Roosevelt's preservation group, and they were a big drive in helping to put Seth McKinley aside as a park. The next gentleman I talked to and talked about was the first ranger at the park, first superintendent. And he was basically the only ranger for 2 million square miles by himself to patrol and all. Uh, but he, so he did that for two or three years. Uh, then he was able to get more rangers to help him. And the third person I talked about was Adolf Murray and how his studies really impacted how wolves were viewed. Of course, wolves now are still viewed in a negative manner, but both his research, at the time he did his studies, National Park Service wanted him to find the opposite result. That they were bad. He said, no, they weren't. So I kind of wrapped it up by telling people that no matter where they were at, no matter what park might be next to them, no matter what park, uh you know, place that they might might fall have fallen in love with, that, that for them to get involved, urge them to get involved. And I said, and if you think you can't make a difference, one person can make a difference, just ask these three gentlemen. And you see a lot of people going, whoa. <laughs> So it's, it's thing that like you bring. You had to bring basically three different three different things that you bring together at the end. Uh, more than that, you start losing people. I mean, I think my presentation went at 20, 25 minutes, and I know others that I've done at Andersonville, ones that I did at Stately Oaks, and other places. Anything beyond thirty, unless it's a guided tour that's designed to be for that long, you start losing people. They start walking away, unless even when you really got their interest. But so that's kind of what I had to pass. And um, not only with NAI, but the Rangers graded me on whether, not only on what I said, but how the people in the audience reacted to it. <laughs> so is getting getting that, seeing kind of seeing the light bulbs come on above people's heads. That's what they're really like, shattering stereotypes. And no, it doesn't always, people won't always get it initially. That's why I had one of the, uh, there it was buses that uh, brought the uh, visitors up to me at the cabin in Denali, and I had one of the um, bus drivers ask me in the in the employee bar one night. He goes, "You know, nobody cares about that cabin." I said, "What?" He says, "Nobody. Cares. They want to see the wolves. They want to see the. They want to see the mountain. They don't care about that cabin." And every presentation I did I had hundred to 150 people there. And I looked at him. I said, "Do you know? if just one person." Out of that group gets interested enough to look deeper into what I'm talking about, it's worth it. And he goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean out of 150 people, if just one person gets it, you consider it worth it? I went, Yep. Is it reaching the one? Because not everybody's going to get it. They're not. As much as you want them to, they're not going to get it. They may get it later. There's some that may walk away mad as crap, but that anger is going to make them look up something. To prove you wrong and in the process they're going to find something to prove you right so you wow. don't argue with them talk to them converse uh just let it sink in So what my favorite principle of tilden's is interpretation is not instruction it's provocation and of course that doesn't mean provoke them to a fight it means prov- provoke their brain to work and process outside the box which is what we want people to do
0: Yes, I, I, I was thinking that exact principle when you were saying that because I was like, ah, oh, that's when we're trying to provoke them to make them think. We want to make people think, you know, not trying to make them like happy, sad or angry necessarily, but just trying to make them, them think. And if they do have emotions along with thinking, then, well, I guess that's better. Maybe, perhaps. <laughs> so, Everybody
1: comes from their own background, their own culture, their own, the way they were raised affects how they think. I, myself, when, when, throughout my life has gone on from a long road to, to be quite frank, I was, to be honest, I was raised as a lost causer. But through research, personal experiences, everything, it's, I've come a long way. My own presentations and presenting. I know when I first started doing Living History, kind of afraid to say I would not wear the blue. I was stupid. <laughs> didn't, did, would not put on a Yankee uniform. But now the times I've done it, I actually wear blue more than I do gray. Um, so it's, it's, when you're talking to somebody, especially about subjects that do get people that are passionate about, you have to remember, yes, you have all these passions, you have these beliefs, you have these things that you've learned and studied and, and you know it, but the person you're talking to, they've also, they've also had this stuff driven into their head all their life, just like I was. And so that's what you're facing. It's not that they are this person who's just totally outset to be against you and and well, you know, it should be this way or it should be that way. Well, they've been taught that all their life. And you've really got to recognize that to talk to some people.
0: You have to understand that your audience has a whole whole host of things that they are bringing with them, and perhaps preconceived notions about certain historical topics or historical figures that may or may not be true Um, and then hopefully through you know your performance as a historical character they will come to see a perhaps more total picture of the person a more human view of the person because i think we have that problem a lot with our founding fathers in particular is that we view them as almost these demigods this pantheon of american history and they they were just they were humans they had problems and did things like humans do, uh, you know. They, they did some great things. They did some terrible things. Uh, but they, they were they were humans.
1: They were products of the culture they lived in. But even the, when you talk about you doing the wolf, talking about wolves at, at the cabin, uh, of course I you know ended my presentation as part of that you know, that they're good for the natural ecosystem and this the that. I had this guy come up to me after one of them, big old hat. He was a, a rancher from Montana and he got in my face and he goes, wolves should be killed. All of them because they, they they kill prey herds. I've seen a massacre of prey prey herds. They just kill all of them. He said, if they keep it up, all the prey animals are going to be extinct. I said, sir, if that was the case, wouldn't they be all extinct before the Europeans got here? He just turned away mad and his wife was stomping off with him. Then she stopped and she turned around and just kind of looked at me. With this, huh? It dawned on her what I had said. <laughs> and then she you know, quickly followed him. But these things like, yeah, I'm not telling you, I didn't come out and say, you're wrong, buddy. I said, well, think about it this way. If, wouldn't it be, to, okay. <laughs> you know,
0: you try to, you know, you ask questions. You provoke thinking.
1: Yes, exactly. You get them to come up with the answer. I mean, you can't, and to be honest, we can't tell people what to think that would be stupid of us to think we could but like you said ask questions get them in a conversation that gets them thinking against what they were raised thinking or what they not to say every interaction should be like that because it's it's not but you do have those instances where that is a definite possibility especially at particular sites
0: now we've been talking a lot about just the knowledge that you have to have to be a historical character to portray doing first person or third person living history we haven't touched much on the material culture that is also necessary to accurately portray that character because if i show up in a t-shirt and blue jeans and i'm like hey i'm martha washington no one's going to believe that even if i have all the knowledge of martha washington in my head they're going to be like you do not look like her like
1: well i might believe it if you show up in a delorean
0: maybe but that would be under various particular circumstances. <laughs> so Okay,
1: so where's where does this stuff come from is what you're saying, right?
0: Exactly. So we have to think about like, what, you know, where do these historical, how do people get these historical outfits? How do people get historical props? Because those are all necessary for putting on a historical performance most of the time. If we are essentially a small band of very passionate historical actors, small troops, if you will, that, you know, we, we come with our own, you know, prop sets and costumes and knowledge. We don't really, some people have a working script, like you said, some historical characters, they have like their script that they can go through. And then some people, they, they're they like, well, I do a general presentation. It's different every time. But, you know, they, they kind of follow a general formula that they have in their head, but still make it a little bit more improv, if you will, historical improv. But yes, do you what costumes do you use or some people get very upset when I say costumes. When, what historical garb do you don? Because at, at the same time, I also am like, they're not my costume. They're just like my historical clothes. And I've actually had people tell me, because I, I, I like posed for an art class once, because they're like, you have a bunch of weird costumes. Can we draw them? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? That sounds fun. So I went to this art class, and I was in all my, all my historical outfits, and this is an art class where they've had a, it's a hobbyist and they have people in costumes come in all the time. And they kind of came up to me and they're like, you don't wear that like a costume. And I was like, what? And they're like, you feel it's, it's natural when you're wearing it. And I was like, well, yeah, cause they're, they're my clothes. This is just like my 18th century clothes. This is my 1860 clothes. This is my 1940s clothes, but like, they're my clothes. And I think that makes a whole different Idea is that I'm not wearing costume. I'm just wearing my outfit from this different time period. Because if you wear like a costume, it's not natural, and then that almost breaks down the whole historical interpretation, like almost from the get go. So it has to be very, very natural. I think is when, when we when we don our historical garb. It's it's very essential to our characters into the history that we are portraying.
1: And it's like oh, this feels good. <laughs> But you're asking, where does it come from?
0: Yes, where where do you get yours? I think it's interesting to ask different historical interpreters this question.
1: Well, of course, the um, Civil War stuff. There's a lot of you know, a, lot, a lot of companies which are called sutlers, because that's what they were referred to during the Civil War itself. That uh, make and sell the, uh, the uniforms, the equipment, the, and um, there's others which I'm not as familiar with. There's ones that do Rev War, sell Rev War stuff. Some of the some of the same companies do Civil War, they do Rev War, French and Indian, different eras, World War II. There's some that that are specifically dedicated to World War One, World War Two impressions, which are still done all over the country um, and even in Europe. But it's the, um, the interesting one that I still have not, to be uh, honest, I have not got all the ones yet to do Andrew Fluch. I have a, uh, a NPS color shirt, pants, and the hat.
0: Because was that provided to you by the NPS? No. No? Oh, okay.
1: No. Well, actually, when I went up there and actually did Andrew Flute, it was – a wool jacket and wool pants that I could have easily thrown a cartridge box over my shoulder and it could have been a Civil War uniform. I mean, it was... (laughs) But since then, I've got... Looking at the NPS regulations from 1940, it gets really complicated, believe it or not. Because up to a certain month, it was this. Then after this, it was certain... They only had this for a couple of months, and then they had this. Uh, So all I've got so far from... and, And there are people companies that make those a lot of the ones that make the that of course that era i'm looking to looking after the ones that supply world war ii gear because being 1940 the uh, nps uniforms were very military in appearance the uh the boots would come up almost all the way to the uh knee and had the ballooned out sides to it like a world war I military pants so I, that's that's what i've been looking to as far as a source of what to get for the andrew fluch's uniform it has been a little harder trying to actually find this stuff one thing that's needed is nps pins that you know for the uh collar and those are a very rare commodity uh those that are in the survey nps don't want to get rid of those, even their extra ones they want to hold on to them and the ones that you find on the internet are like oh my god they want how much for those <laughs> uh, but it's uh you can modify <laughs> like I said, the the stuff for Andrew Fluch, I'm getting from World War II suppliers. Um, And that's going to come in handy, too, because I've been looking, like I mentioned earlier, Civilian Conservation Corps, a uniform, which was a very military-style uniform also, very similar to the World War II 1941 uniform. And then with the the sharecropper, it actually goes back to a lot of the uh, civilian uh, Civil War look. Wool pants, torn-up shirt, ragged hat, but it's all you, there are suppliers that do it. Just a quick search will give you quite a few of them.
0: I'm one of those people who has, um, sometimes I don't always like everything that settlers have to offer for various reasons <laughs> um, and therefore have a, a greater tendency to make all of my own things.
1: <laughs> you are one of the more talented in that regard, yeah. <laughs> and then with the, the settlers and things you buy from, it's it's like any hobby. Yeah, you know, looking at fishing or golf or this, they have stuff at the low end, they have stuff at the high end, and to be honest, mid to high is what you need if you want it to last. Because most of the uniforms and gear that I have now are the same ones I started doing uh, reenactments with in
0: 1994. As it lasts. It's good material that lasts. They're made to be quality pieces. They're not fast fashion disposable garments. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I, I could get up on a soapbox about that, but
1: um, I'll hold the soapbox still for you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, especially I think sometimes with because some of those like Civil War settlers and whatnot, they're very good at portraying certain military uniforms because those are all very regulation. They are, you know, if it's not real or, or you know, if it's not right. And then they're all supposed to look a certain way for the most part. But then sometimes you get into like ladies' civilian dress and there's so many different options that people kind of go a little wild with some of their creativity. And it's not always the most accurate. You know, you don't have like a uniform pattern to follow. Uh, so sometimes things, things just happen that are perhaps not the most accurate of historical things. So just be careful when you go and look at sutlers, everybody.
1: It's when you do that you it's best to take somebody that has been doing it for a long time that's experienced with you the first few times
0: i think almost as you say that because that's how you know i was told don't go to settler's road by yourself your your first reenactment like take someone with you who knows what they're doing and i was like oh my gosh like are they what's happening <laughs> like you need to go with margaret and i was like okay margaret i need to find margaret and go with margaret but um I, I think a lot of this is almost like a keeping with the historical theme. It's almost like a, an apprenticeship trade. That is, is kind of how it's learned because it's hard to like go to a class and be like, I know how to do all of this now. Even though I, you know, you've gone to classes, I've gone to class, like I did a whole historic preservation certificate. And one of my whole classes I spent a semester on was historic site interpretation. and. I still don't feel like I learned as much at that class or in that class as I did just going and doing it and getting that experience. And I think that class helped because I had the experience and I knew what was kind of happening and like actually have done it versus I was talking to a bunch of people in my class who had no idea what any of this stuff was. And I'm like, oh my goodness gracious, if only you knew. <laughs> and then also, you know, they're giving their opinions on things. And I'm like, have you ever done that? You know how hard it is. To do that, I did not do it. But um, you know, because they're just giving their their willy nilly college student opinions about certain historical interpretation plans, and I was just like, i they don't even know what they're doing. But it's fine.
1: Boots before corset, right?
0: Oh, I'm actually I never do that, but because it's, really? no, I've always put my shoes on last, and because that, that people tell me that all the time. And I was like, if you have a corset that you know, people just don't either. They're not flexible. Or they don't know how to bend because if you, if you just like, you don't have to like, you don't have to bend to put on your shoes.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) just I've always heard that.
0: People have told me that and they're like, I just, I can't get my shoes on if I put my corset on first. And I was like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, do you need to go and do some yoga, some stretches? Because, because you're, I've, I've never put my, like, I've never followed that rule. And I've always had my shoes on and I've also always had my corset on, so. I don't know. That's a weird one for me. I was like, "That's not that's not gospel truth," but uh, <laughs> but yes. So I feel like, I feel like we've gone on nerding uh, for for quite a while now. So we'll we'll wrap it up here. <laughs> but why do you think this is an important way to teach history through historical representation of characters? Be that first person, third person, reenactment, living history, historical figure portrayals. And you know, reenactment is more like reenacting a specific event, living history is kind of just living in the era, a historical figure, obviously you're focusing on that one person. So how do you feel like all of that comes together to create, and perhaps in my opinion, one of the better ways to teach history?
1: It is, it, as I mentioned earlier, it makes it personal. We can't know or understand where we are without knowing where we came from, and how we came from there. So many people today, with uh, I mean, there's you know, there's strife, there's divisions in, in our culture now. In a lot of it is not understanding how we got to where we are. We are still feeling the repercussions of historical events 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 250 years ago. If if we don't know about them, then we, we're kind of really in the dark to say anything about where we are now, culturally, naturally, historically. And so why do I need to know about history? Well, it's, history's boring. History was boring for me in high school, too. It was dry. I wanted to kill my history teachers. <laughs> Actually, I had in arguments with my history teachers. Um, I even had one instructor, I'll say i a you know, Native, Native American heritage, had one history uh, professor in college that said, a couple of the minor instances of the Indian Wars with Sand Creek and Little Bighorn. Minor. Yeah. Okay. And if any of you listening to this, you probably know what Little Bighorn is and, and and Custer. If you don't know what Sand Creek is, that's kind of a big thing for Native Americans. You can look it up. Uh, I won't go on there. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really you're bringing it alive, making it a personal. As I mentioned earlier, starting turning those statistics into actual living, breathing people. And that's what gets people to care. And yes, we still have, I mentioned, we're having repercussions from hundreds of years ago while we're here, but once we know why and how, then maybe we can work more on correcting it. Because yeah, that still needs to be corrected, but if all we're going to do is fight and scream and yell at each other, that's not going to change anything. And I know from a fact if anybody just starts yelling yelling things at me and cursing and calling me names, I'm instantly on the defensive and I'm not open to anything. So it's this, I think, doing this is a very effective way of getting those different messages out, getting people to care, no matter which side they're on. Um, as I mentioned, I'd, I've come a long way in, my, in how I see things because of things I've experienced. And I think that's important for other people to do too. And
0: I think living history reenactment Meeting a historical figure, it's not just a lecture about history, it's an experience for that visitor who then has a personal relationship to that history that they are going to carry with them for as long as that impression lasts, which could be forever if it's good. Hopefully,
1: <laughs> yep. Conversation works wonders. I believe it was the uh, gentleman, Mr. Is it Mr. Tilly that does the uh, slave cooking? Um, you haven't heard of him? Oh, what's his, I read his book here somewhere. Oh, is but it Gene Gene? Gene something. Is it Gene Tilly? I
0: don't know. Is the book called The Cooking Gene?
1: Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, he actually said, I believe it was him that said this, uh, as far as conversation and talking instead of arguing, he said, come sit down and eat dinner with me then we will understand each other as i love that that's because you're making a point of sitting down you're sharing food you're sharing dinner which is something personal you know you don't really open yourself to do that with strangers much so it's a personal action and then to have a personal conversation with somebody you do you're opening yourself up and you're getting to know them otherwise it's a very dry boring dinner
0: And we've all sat through dry, boring dinners. And we've also all have probably sat through dry, boring history lectures given by high school coaches that needed something to do during the day, which are not the best. Because when you were saying that, it made me think about, and and just how like relational things stick with you more. I fell in love with history through American Girl dolls because I read all of their stories. I had the doll. It was, you know, the doll was my friend, obviously and you know they had all of their little clothes and accessories which essentially is like a miniature living history kit but it's oh. miniature for the doll and I, I think about this a lot of times it's like i just became the doll myself living out my, my best doll life uh, as a historical <laughs> interpreter <and reading. laughs> um, but it became it was relational because i read the stories about this person and i you know got to you know buy their little outfits and understand about their life as a whole and it was a young girl who was just like me and a lot of times young girls don't always see themselves in history books a lot of times a lot of kids you know they're like oh well this is a bunch of adults doing weird boring adult stuff so to see a kid experience history it very much was very relational and you know made me interested sent me on the path where i am today awesome (laughs) So hopefully all we have convinced all of our listeners that living history reenactments and character portrayals are some of the best ways to portray history um, <laughs> and that they will hopefully go to their historic sites nearby that perhaps are engaging in those historic interpretive practices and maybe it would be really great if we convinced somebody to get out there and and start you know getting into all of this um
1: Yes, it would. There's not enough of us out there.
0: It takes a really dedicated person because to get started, it's it's a large time commitment. It can also be a fairly large financial commitment to get all of this stuff. Another reason why I sew all of my own things. Then Again is a production of the Catrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THEN AGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of THEN AGAIN. Thanks, y'all.